So, uh, let's jump into the lesson, though. Genesis uh, 48. Okay. 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 Lost the connection. First point. So, as you guys turn there, um, obviously there's 50 chapters in Genesis. We're doing 48 to 49, so it's coming to a close. And like any good conclusion, really we're just hammering the points we've already learned deeper and deeper. So we get some flashbacks, some, I guess, reflecting a lot on what the journey we've come through from Abraham now to Jacob and Joseph. And uh, yes, we're, I guess, as we close, keep that in mind and be looking out for those, I guess, nuggets or those flashbacks as we consider Jacob blessing his sons. So we'll read uh, 48 um, down, I have it up there, 49 to 28. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God, Al God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I'll make you a community of people, and I will give you this land, an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt, before I came to you here, will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Sibion are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours. In the territory they inherited, they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. As I was returning from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan, while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrath. So I had buried her there beside the road of Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, Who are these? These are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, Bring them to me so I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knee and bowed down with his face to the ground, and Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right towards Israel, Ephraim on his right toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left toward Israel's right hand, and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put on Ephraim's head though he was the younger. And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, and even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name, and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And may they increase greatly on the earth. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. 
Joseph said to him, No, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people, and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, In your name will, in your name will Israel pronounce his bless, this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you I give one more ridge of land than to your brothers, the ridge I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they please. Cursed be their anger, so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun will live by the seashore and become a haven for ships. His brothers will extend, or his borders will extend towards Sidon. Issachar is a raw-boned donkey lying down among the sheep pens. When he sees how good is his resting place and how pleasant his land, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. Dan will provide justice for his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a snake by the, road, by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider tumbles backwards. I look for your deliverance, Lord. Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders, but he will attack them at their heels. Asher's food will be rich, and he will provide delicacies fit for a king. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns, Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attack him. They shot at him with hostility, but his bow remained steady. His strong arms stayed limber because of the land of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helps you, because of the Almighty who blesses you. With blessings of the skies above, Blessings of the deep spring below, blessings 
of the breast and womb. Your Father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, than the bounty of the age-old hills. Let these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, in the evening he divides the plunder. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. Right. <laughs> it's a bit long, but we got through it. Um, let me just flip it for me, Jack. Thanks, mate. So Jacob and his sons. Um, just a quick, I guess, summary, if you will, uh, if you're zoning out, because there's a big piece of passage, not like the dome zoning out, but I'll summarize it for you to help you anyway. So um, Jacob is, you know, getting on in years, and he wants to pass on his legacy to his sons. So he brings Joseph's two children to him, and he basically adopts them. Um, he makes them, he brings them on par the same level as Joseph. So now he, they are one of Israel's sons, and now it's really the 13 tribes of Israel. Um, I have up there a little chart for you. If, you, if it helps you visualize, it helps me visualize, but um, some people try and reconcile, not, I don't know, it's not important to the passage, but just of interest. People try and reconcile, oh, it's not 12 tribes anymore. Well, some people think because he's talking about the inheritance, and the Levites actually technically didn't inherit any land because they're priests. So it's the 12 tribes minus the Levites in terms of inheritance and receiving things, or the 13 tribes minus the Levites. Or some people think Simeon's tribe kind of disappears into Judah and just becomes one of them. So now Simeon disappears and you have Manasseh and Ephraim to take the place. So there you go, the 12 tribes. But not that it's extremely important to our text, but just something of interest if, um, if you want to explore ancient Israel history a little bit more. But really, I mean, the main point we get here is Joseph blessing his sons, right? He wants to leave on that legacy, and he gathers them, and he's giving them each a unique blessing of their own. Um, sorry, let me find my notes. Thanks, guys. Each, as I say, each blessing is quite unique. Um, Zebulun is... As you see, when he gets established in the promised land, he becomes well off, trading a lot. Ishikari, I don't know, he's, he's quite content with life, so he becomes a pushover to the land around him. But I think I would be part of the tribe of Asher. I mean, they're the ones who make good food, so I wouldn't want to be a part of that one. But each, as I said, the more the point is, is that Jacob's life is ending, okay? And so, like... Like a gravestone or like rocks established, this is a point of emphasis within the narrative and with, I mean, that death serves as a whole is like a gravestone that sits, it's a point of intensity that makes you pay attention and consider. You look to the past, but you're also considering the future, the future of your legacy. And we see that with Jacob here. He's an old man, an old patriarch who has wrestled with God. He's been through a lot in life and he's ended, it's coming to a close. And now is his time to consider, okay, what is important? You know, in his reflection, what is it that I want to pass on? What do I want my children to continue through or know and continue on through? And that's the framework of this whole, um, this whole section. And we'll consider those two pieces today, the, the past, what he's reflecting on, 
and how that informs the future and what he's looking forward to with uh, his sons. But before we jump into that, uh, as Jeff already hit it, well played. The, we're gonna, I want to spend a little more time on death because this is something I think has become quite taboo in our culture today. Not a lot of people really want to talk about death. Um, it's really hidden from us in a lot of ways and don't have to consider it as much because it's, I guess it's not as confronting or it is confronting and that's why we try and hide away and do with it. If you want to read a good book on it, I have it up there. Timothy Keller writes um, yeah, a whole book on death and the importance of it and how it um, serves as... I mean, he uses the quote, smelling salts, right? It's supposed to wake us up and confront us to, okay, your morality, right? That you're going to die one day, and that this world isn't forever. And those questions are overwhelming and intensive at first, yes, but uh, absolutely necessary in providing a healthier perspective on life and the kind of life you want to live. I think in today's, as I said, it's become a little taboo, especially because our world is becoming progressively more secular. You know, the great enemy of our existence is death, because if there's nothing else out there, then why would I want to consider the time in which it ends at all? And if this becomes challenging for our world, you know, what happens when I die? There is no answer. And this confronts people, you know, what is, when faced with death, we naturally consider those things. But if I believe that death um, is the point that ends it all and nothing matters, that my life on earth was completely insignificant and life is just about distracting myself and enjoying yourself from the inevitable and that we're nothing more than a product of neurons firing away, right? Then absolutely that's something you would want to avoid. That's not a topic you really want to broach or be confronted by. It's incredibly scary. Yeah. And our life, you know, I guess you see the, the consequences of what that, if you do live life that way, as someone who doesn't, doesn't think beyond, right? And you approach that maybe stoically, like, yep, that's the end. Or if you're an evolutionist and think, you know, there is, the, there is no God, there's nothing else afterwards. It's just, you know, we're, all, we're just a product of our environment through thousands and thousands of years, right? Well, if you live like that, I mean, I guess consider the ramifications if you truly take on those beliefs. You know, there is, I mean, if you try and communicate that to someone you love, right, that our relationship means nothing more than just um, producing and continuing on the human genome and that you're, you're basically a tool to me to con continue on evolution. I mean, if you try and tell it to someone you love, it doesn't... Yes, it doesn't really match, it doesn't really gel, and there's, uh, yeah, there's great consequences for that. Um, and especially at your own death, you know, or sorry, especially at your own death or the death of a loved one, you consider those things, that you consider, what is life? What am I living for? Um, for those who don't know, <laughs> I know there's a little bit of, I don't know, maybe tension in the room, but I've recently experienced a lot, this very scene, right, that... Uh, my father recently passed away in the last six months, and I can attest to this. It's, it's tough. I mean, as he was sitting there ill, right, he, like Jacob, he considered these things. He 
He thought a lot about his life and what was important to him and what mattered, right? And he was very intentional and clear with my brother and I as well as to say, these are the things that when I look back, I know that matter. And he was communicating it absolutely clearly to us that, hey, these are the things I want you to live by and I want you to hold to and hold on dearly to. And that's the, I guess, the confronting or the great thing, not the, I mean, great thing, but the confronting thing about death and something that's vital for, I guess, in all of our lives is to consider, okay, yeah, what is, what is that he's trying to tell me? What is the, what is, what did he find important and how do I want to then continue and develop that legacy? Rather than living in fear of death, sorry, this is from Timothy Keller, his quote, rather than living in fear of death, we should see it as spiritual smelling salts that will awaken us out of our false belief that we will live forever. When you're at a funeral, especially one for a friend or a loved one, listen to God speaking to you, telling you that everything in life is temporary except for his love. This is reality. Everything in this life is going to be taken away from us, except one thing, God's love, which can go into death with us and take us through it and into his arms. He's the one thing you can't lose. Without God's love to embrace us, we will always feel radically insecure, and we ought to be. And we will discuss more about God's love, but really I just want to focus, I guess, on the first point in that we should really be paying attention to Jacob's words here, right? That of a dying patriarch. What does he hold dear and close to him? And how does he faithfully welcome death? So we'll look at those two points, remembering the past. If you remember a couple weeks ago, Sam challenged us to be good stewards of our memories. I mean, and Jacob is a great picture of someone who is a good steward of his memory. You to be people who look back and, I mean, yes, see the chaotic and the frustrating times, but see, okay, how is God there through it all? How is he taking care of me? And you see that in how he reflects and how he considers Ephraim and Manasseh, right? They're, they're two sons who are getting a blessing from their father who can't really see, and he blesses the younger over the older. That's a very familiar passage or a very familiar concept for Jacob. He too was um, the son that was the younger son that received the older son's blessing. Yeah. And if you remember, as we looked at those points last, I don't know, it would have been a while ago now. But it's pointing to the point that God is the one who's in control. He's the one who chooses his people and instruments, not on the basis of what is culturally or socially, I guess, appropriate or um, according to what we think, but on what he believes or what, how he wants to use those instruments. Mm-hmm. And so Jacob looks to that and he sees, okay, God was working here. You see it the same way in how he blesses Judah over Reuben, Levi, and Simeon. He knows it is the God using the, yeah, as I said, the, maybe not the despised, but the, the weak things or the things that you wouldn't expect to humble the proud. Jacob looks in the past of his life, and it can be easily a point of bitterness that, you know, to be taken away from his home, work on slavery basically for 20 years, wander around, never really having your place or being established. But he rather choose to look at it faithfully and see God's providential hand yeah. throughout it all. Yeah. So he's being a good steward and sober-minded 
about how God was there. Next point. He doesn't only, only remember, I guess, the good, but he also remembers the bad, I guess, the sins of the past. And knows that there's possibly some stones left unturned that need to be addressed. And that's how he approaches his sons, I have it up there, Reuben, Simeon, Simeon and Levi. Because, and um, if you read on first glance, those aren't, those don't really appear as blessings, uh, or typical blessings, I guess. Um, but he's, I guess, addressing unresolved issues from the past. Because these guys largely went consequence-free. I mean, Reuben, uh, I have it up there, he took uh, Jacob's concubine and, and slept with her. That's the, the euphemism of defiling your father's bed. And then Simeon and Levi, you know, committed genocide to an entire nation. Their violence was intense and um, full on, right? And we haven't seen those consequences really play out yet. But here in this passage, Jacob's bringing it back. And he's <laughs> not letting him forget that, hey, th there's judgment. There's going to be consequences for your actions and what you've done. You're not getting, you're not getting off scotch-free because... Now you're in Egypt, things look peachy and fine, and Joseph saved us, great. But that there's, yeah, consequences and for generations and generations to come, there's ramifications to those consequences. So it's not like massively clear within the text, but possibly helping them, you know, towards repentance to give them another chance. Because these are, I mean, as I said, if, they, if these were my father's last words to me, that would absolutely haunt me. That would destroy me. That is something you consider and think. But as I said, there's, there's got to be consequences. And maybe Jacob's trying to help him in his last moments to say, hey, you guys got to repent. You got to change this. And I have it up there on the last point. Um, you know, do we take the same stance towards sin? All right? There's Maybe there's past unresolved sin or things within our character or consequences within our life that have gone undealt with, or maybe we see that within someone else, but are we addressing those things? Like Jacob here, he, he knows before he's death, dead, or before he dies, it's important that these things are properly addressed and worked out between them. Do we take that same stance? Do we, you know, um, not recklessly, but, you know, shamelessly take the truth to someone's life and say, there's consequences for these things, and you have to be conscious and careful of where that sin will lead you. So, again, Jacob trying to help his sons, not only look at God's providential hand, but for the, to remind them that there's consequences for our actions, Amen. and we have to learn from them. So we've considered the past, now how is Jacob looking to the future? On a very basic level, every parent, I mean I assume, <laughs> wants the best for their children when they pass. They're considerate, right? They maybe a life insurance policy set up, or they want to, you know, make sure that the child is taken care of in some way, that the future is um, full of providence, happy, healthiness, um, and they're looking into the child's future as far as they can to make sure they're set up. Even I guess if you know your grandchildren. That's something you want to make sure for them as well. That, okay, yeah, I care about them as well. I want to make sure they're organized and set up and they're okay. But what about your great-grandchildren? I don't know if many of us know our great-grandchildren, but is that someone you're considering, I guess, as you're passing on? 
I'm not entirely sure. What about your great-great-grandchildren? There's, uh, I mean, I don't know. I, that's not necessarily a generation that's on the, the forefront of my mind. But those are the people that Jacob is considering when he's talking, about, when he's talking to them as if they're entering the land, the promised land, to fulfill God's promise. You know, as the list continues to, or it, his great-great-grandchildren were the ones that entered the promised land. And I'm sure Jacob, uh, as a father, cared about his son's futures, like a lot of us. But he's looking way beyond, and more intense within his focus is God's promise being fulfilled through his great-great-great-grandchildren. He's repeated the fulfillment of the promise three times his blessing to Ephraim and Manasseh. And I have it up there as well. Hebrews 11 is an epic summary of all the patriarchs of faith. You have you know, Cain, who was you know, basically killed for his sacrifice for, for, uh, for God. You have Enoch, who lived such a perfect life that God took him back up to heaven, which would be nice. Um, Noah, who, through the ridicule of the nations around him, built an ark and um, yeah, I guess obeyed God fearlessly in those ways, and Abraham was willing to sacrifice his one and only son. But the hallmark of Jacob is, um, I guess you would expect, like one of these the epic moments of either wrestling with God or you know, his obedience or, I don't know, something, something else. But he gets commemorated in Hebrews 11, the Hall of Fame of Faith, as blessing his children. Which I found interesting, you know, that Jacob blessed his sons and lived, I guess he, he is commended for his faith because Jacob blessed his sons and lived his last breath with a confidence and a faith that God would fulfill the promise made to, his, to Abraham and that's what he wants to pass on to his children. Don't forget the promise. This isn't your home. He lived his life as if his sons were already there in the promised land. His Zebulun will be this, and as, you know, as we already went through, his mind was, was there, but I guess reality wasn't, but that's how he was speaking and communicating to them. And that's what showed great faith and why he's commemorated in Hebrews 11, is he's living, he was living and speaking to them as if the promise had already happened, as if tomorrow they'll be there Drinking wine and celebrating and being in peace with God. But, I mean, that, as we know from the text and from, uh, I guess, the rest of the story, that is many, many generations later. And do we, live e do we live each day with the hope of what is to come? Because that's the tension of faith. You live, or you live and communicate as if it's happened. That, or sorry, that's the... That's what faith is, is living that in that tension of what is to come. You're living as if the, the promise is to come now. Sorry, I couldn't get it out. As John preached, we shouldn't let complacency sink in just because it didn't happen all those other days before. Just because it doesn't, didn't happen those other days doesn't mean it can't happen tomorrow. So that's our promise, or that's Jacob's promise, right? And that's what he's focusing on. What is our promise? What's our promise that God has given us? Um, as we see here, I, I put it in there as well. If we go back to um, Judah's prophecy or the blessing that Judah is given, we get 
a cool snapshot into what our promise is, because in fact, Jacob is actually looking forward to it as well. He said, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, the obedience of the nation shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes, his eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Now just at first glance, Judah is receiving the blessing of the firstborn, that he will lead Israel fiercely, and that blessing is fulfilled in David, as we know, uh, as we looked at in Samuel, and the remaining kings after him. But commentators, both Jewish and Christian, unanimously agree that the last half of this passage is a prophecy about the Messiah to come. That Judah will, yes, lead, but there is one uh, who, the, who the scepter will truly belongs to. And that Messiah figure will come not only to save Israel, but all the nations to come. And this Messiah figure will issue in a new age of prosperity so overwhelming and so over the top that even the most fine and luxurious items in life are in overwhelming abundance. The imagery used is fascinating that, you know, fine wine will be just so available that you'll wash your clothes in it. I mean, I don't know if you can imagine washing your white linen in a bottle of range, but there you go. That you tie your donkey to the best of grapes because you don't care if the donkey eats half the vine. Um, that the wine is so, so uh, prominent or abundant in your life that your very nature is transformed and your eyes turn red from it. You know, what an overwhelming picture of what the Messiah will bring, that true and deep prosperity. And a lot of the early church read this passage and knew this could only be Jesus. That he opened up salvation to all the nations. That at a wedding banquet, he turned water into the fine, delicious wine, right? Flowing in abundance. That Jesus, as well, would one day return. The nations will bow down and obey, and we will live in prosperity beyond our understanding. Jacob saw this and was considering this. He saw this promise to come. Do we live our lives like this? We have such a grand and incredible promise of the new kingdom to come. Amen. A hope that allows us to confront death, not out of fear, but faithfully. Amen. Like Joseph's boys, we have been adopted, right? Into a higher status within God's family. Yes. On no merit of our own, but based on the merit of another. Grand promises, but do we believe them? Would your life look different if you knew that these promises would be fulfilled tomorrow? I don't know if you, I mean, I've found this within the passage, but faith like this can be quite intimidating. I mean, those, these examples in Hebrews 11 are, I mean, they're commended for a reason. They're incredibly high calling. That are a high standard that we are called to. <laughs> Abraham sacrificing his son, or I mean, we don't have the opportunity that to sacrifice our sons or um, to give blessings to our children on our deathbeds. Um, 
But these are grand examples to, I guess, narrow it in, or it shows us the extreme to teach us how we can live these moments in our everyday lives. You know, are you tired of the, the ups and downs of life? Are you exhausted? Do you feel like you're stuck in Egypt? Well, focus your eyes on the promise of Jesus. Do you feel tempted by the complacency and comfortableness of life? Focus on your eyes on the promise of Jesus. And focus on the security of the cross that will radically transform our perspective and allow us to live in the promise secured for us now. Because he has come and conquered our greatest enemy, death. And as we close out today, let us pay careful attention to the words of this dying patriarch. A man who lived um, you know, a large life and consider what he valued and what he wanted to pass on to his sons. And allow ourselves to wrestle, wrestle with death and allow it to confront us with these difficult questions. And when we pay close attention to these words, we see a man who is pleading with us to remember God's providence, his judgment, and promises. And let's consider if we closely hold on to those things and live with the promises at the forefront of our mind as if it's happening tomorrow, how will our lives be transformed in every day and faithfully um, let those promises sink in. So I'll end with a word of prayer and we'll sing one last song and pass a contribution back to where I'm still. Dear Lord, thank you for this time together. I'm grateful that we get to yeah, consider such a great text and consider Jacob and a, um, yeah, an incredibly intense moment, um, one that offers a lot of reflection and pondering and confrontation as well as we consider you know, what this man thought was important and what he wanted to pass on to his sons, and I just pray that we can um, listen to his words and carefully um, yeah, pay attention to those uh, vital things within life, that we consider your providence and consider um, the amazing promise that we have in Jesus, and that we uh, hold on to those promises, and that you allow it, or that those promises change our everyday lives, so that we live as if they're happening today. We love you, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen.